Welcome to The Commentaries, a podcast series from TAN in which you'll learn how to read and understand history's greatest Catholic works from today's greatest Catholic scholars. In every series of The Commentaries, your expert host will be your personal guide to not just read the book, but to live the book, shining the light of its eternal truths into our modern darkness. Visit TANCommentaries.com to get your copy of the book and to subscribe for access to all the great reading plans, new episodes, bonus content, and exclusive deals for listeners of the commentaries. Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode in the commentary series on the Dialogue of St. Catherine of Siena. I'm Sister Mary Madeline Todd, a Dominican Sister of the Congregation of St. Cecilia from Nashville, Tennessee. Today is day 15 in our series, and we'll be continuing within St. Catherine's Treatise of Prayer on the theme of the Three Lights of Truth. In this episode, we'll begin with the subsection, How the Light of Reason is Necessary, and we'll conclude with the subsection, in what way they who stand in the above-mentioned third most perfect light receive the earnest of eternal life in this life. In these sections, the Father responds to St. Catherine's great desire to know more about the ways that souls can come to the knowledge of truth and therefore greater love of God. Let us begin with St. Catherine's prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Eternal God, Eternal Trinity, You have made the blood of Christ so precious through His sharing in Your divine nature. You are a mystery as deep as the sea. The more I search, the more I find, and the more I find, the more I search for You. But I can never be satisfied. What I receive will ever leave me desiring more. When you fill my soul, I have an ever greater hunger, and I grow more famished for your light. I desire above all to see you, the true light, as you really are. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back. In our last segment, the 14th of this series, the Father spoke to Catherine about the five different kinds of tears that a person experiences in the spiritual life. The first kind, which the Father calls the tears of death, are tears that are shed by those who are attached to sin and who weep when they do not get what they want. These tears are inspired by self-love and selfish desire. And that is why the Father refers to them as tears of death. The other four kinds of tears are related to different stages of growth in the spiritual life. The second kind are called tears of fear. These are shed when a person is still imperfect in the spiritual life, but begins to weep over sin because it causes suffering and leads to punishment. Although this kind of tears motivated by fear is imperfect, it can still be the occasion of setting out in the spiritual life. It is aligned with that moment when souls are weighed down by the exhaustion of the currents of the river of this world. And that exhaustion can lead them, can move them to step onto the bridge of Christ crucified, 
So even though these tears are more about self and more about wanting to avoid the suffering of unhappiness, yet they can move one further. If a person begins to be purified of selfishness and starts to be sorrowful for sin, not just because it causes suffering or doesn't bring happiness, but rather for the love of God, the third level of tears may be reached in which a person weeps because sin is an offense against God. This soul is beginning to walk in virtue and will sometimes weep over consolations that were given but are later withdrawn, but nevertheless is beginning to taste the love of God more deeply and desire to walk in virtue. The fourth and fifth stages of tears are for those who are in close union with God. The fourth tears are shed out of love for one's neighbor and offered as a compassionate prayer of intercession. The fifth level of tears occurs when one weeps for the sweetness experienced in union with God. The soul at this fifth level is no longer attached to itself and its own will and begins to experience the pure joy of the union with God in love. In addition to these five kinds of tears, the Father also tells Catherine that there are tears of fire that are experienced when a soul goes to heaven. He uses the analogy of how water would evaporate if it were placed beside a burning furnace. As the soul is perfectly united with the fire of divine love through the Holy Spirit, tears cease, but not the desire of love. In the perfect joy of heaven, the soul will no longer weep, but it will still be full of desire for God and moved with compassion to pray for sinners. After this consideration of tears, Catherine begs the Father to fill her with insight, to know truth, both for her own soul and for the sake of the spiritual guidance that she can offer to others. It is this hunger for truth in Catherine with which we will pick up in the next section on the three lights by which we come to know truth. The first light by which people come to know truth, God gives in general to those who live in ordinary charity. The other two lights are given to those who abandon the world in their desire for perfection. The Father never leaves souls in darkness because without light, we cannot walk in truth. All people have the light of reason that guides the intellect. And to those who have been baptized, there is also given the light of faith. This faith receives its proper form through the love that arises in the soul as one ponders the blood shed by the only begotten Son of God. God himself is the source of all light as he is the true light. The first enlightenment of the soul helps it to know that everything of this world is passing. This light includes self-knowledge of one's own fragility and weakness, as well as how strong the inclinations are within one that tend to rebel against God after the fall. The battle of the flesh versus the spirit is not something God put in us for our defeat. Rather, he allows it so that we can grow in virtue and be preserved in true humility. 
For the soul created in God's image has such a dignity that if she did not experience the battle of her lower self, it would be very easy for her to give in to pride. As we come to know ourselves and the instability of the passing world, reason longs for more. It desires the light of faith. Faith is a light that is necessary to every rational creature in order to participate in the life of grace. And as we grow in the life of grace, our faith also increases. A soul who lacks faith does not understand just how evil sin is and therefore will not avoid it. Likewise, if a soul has no knowledge of goodness, she will not know to desire God above all, and she will not strive for virtue by which she could reflect the goodness of God in her own life. Without the light of faith, it is easy for souls to end up loving what God hates and hating what God loves. In other words, without faith, it would be easy for us to strive more for vice than for virtue. That is why to not have faith is to be blind to the cause of vice and its remedies, and to fail to have the light that would lead us to true virtue. Once the soul has come to possess faith, she should seek to continue to grow in the way of grace and truth. One who comes to the second and more perfect light is willing to leave behind all the things of this world. The first perfection of such people is that they desire to do penance in order that sensuality may not rebel against reason. Here the father reminds Catherine, as he had said earlier, that penance should be illuminated by discretion, so that in humble knowledge of self, one can discover what is the will of God. The first stage in seeking perfection is not yet perfect, because, as the father tells Catherine, in this stage, the soul places more emphasis on mortification of the body than on destruction of self-will. There is still danger in this state of submitting to spiritual self-will. How would one know if he or she is in this spiritual self-will? This self-will is manifest in seeking consolations and avoiding trials according to one's own will rather than in perfect submission to the will of God. So you can see in a soul in this stage, if, if God has given a consolation and then removes it, the soul is deeply disturbed by that. Or if the soul chooses a, a kind of penance and that somehow becomes impossible, there's a lot of resistance. There's also in this stage, the Lord says, a temptation to judge others who are on this stage of the path. So those who are doing penance in a sense for penance sake, are much more tempted to look at others and judge whether they're doing sufficient penance in their lives. If a soul at this phase allows herself to become proud and she doesn't see how much better it would be to allow God to choose the time, place, and manner of consolation and tribulation, then she will not progress. But the soul who chooses to submit her own will to the will of God in all things is the one who is walking in the third and perfect light. She is humbly aware of her need for God and of the perfection of His plan of love in her life. This third perfect state is that in which a soul welcomes everything that happens to it with reverence for God. Souls in this perfect state are not shaken when troubles come from the world, and they are not 
distressed when they are deprived of spiritual consolations. Because their wills are so submitted to God, they do not doubt that whatever comes is a gift of divine love, and that is why sufferings do not trouble them. A soul in this stage keeps her eyes fixed on Christ crucified and walks in the light of His doctrine. She looks to Christ as the model of her life, and she sees how Jesus, inflamed with holy desire, ran with great eagerness to the shameful death of the cross, ever desiring total obedience to the Father, and burning with love to deliver us from evil unto freedom. And it was this great desire, this great obedience in Christ, that made Him the way and the door for us to come to the Father. The soul who abides in this third and perfect light runs the way of Christ crucified. There is no labor too difficult and no suffering too heavy for her to endure. She has been stripped of all mercenary love, which is love that seeks its own reward, but rather wants only the glory of God and the eternal good of her neighbor. Such souls, the Father says, have been stripped of the old man of sensuality and clothed with the new man, Jesus Christ. These have practiced mortification of the body like those who were in the second, less perfect phase, but not as an end in itself, but rather as a means to help them hold their wills in complete submission to the will of God. Souls who attain to such divine union dwell in a state of peace and quiet. They do not easily take scandal at the actions of others, and they do not see the providential actions of God as obstacles since they are so fully submitted to His will. They cannot be stopped by persecutions, either from the world or from the devil, since their souls are held in peace before God. Those in true union with God do not feel the need to make themselves the judge of other people, especially of God's servants. Instead, they rejoice that there are many different ways in which God draws souls to Himself. Not only do these peaceful souls lack a competitive spirit as they see the many ways in which goodness comes from the actions of their neighbors, but they also do not judge when there is evidence of the failures of others. Rather, they respond in compassion, interceding for sinners with humility, saying that the Father says, Today is thy turn, and tomorrow will be mine, unless the divine grace preserve me. This ability to hold oneself in such peace and goodness flows from the fact that love has been rightly ordered by the soul's oneness with the eternal God. The Father reminds Catherine that even early in her journey, she was instructed in how to keep this well-ordered love in her soul. She heard from divine truth himself, Unite thyself always to me by the affection of love, for I am the supreme and eternal purity. I am that fire which purifies the soul. And the closer the soul is to me, the purer she becomes. 
In this section, the father repeats to Catherine many times that one of the greatest signs of living in this total union with God is refraining from judgment against others. The father tells Catherine that even if she were to see a person doing what appears to be sinful, she should prayerfully submit that person to God's love and God's judgment. And he especially warns her against any kind of judgment of evils that she merely hears but doesn't see. The father tells Catherine that if she wants to arrive at perfect purity of heart, she must do three things. First, she must beg God that she would be united with him in the affection of love and that she should always in her memory return to the benefits she has received from God. Secondly, she must with her intellect see the affection of his love and reflect on the truth of his love for her. And thirdly, she must submit her will to God in all things, discerning only the will of God in everything that befalls her and avoiding judgment of anyone. If she does these three things, the Lord tells her she will arrive at perfection and will begin to taste the joy of eternity, even in this world. In the final part of this section, the Father says to Catherine that if a person remains in this third most perfect light, she receives what he calls the earnest of eternal life, even in this life. This phrase of the earnest of eternal life is synonymous with a pledge or a foretaste of the good that is to come. For in eternal life, the Father says, there will be life without death, satisfaction without disgust, and hunger without pain. When a soul is enlightened by this third light in which she seeks to do the will of God in all things, she seeks only the honor of God and the salvation of souls as she walks in faith even in this world, trusting in the goodness of God who will bring her to the fullness of what she longs for. Even though a soul cannot be made perfect in this world, it can begin to taste the goodness of the next. In this life, even the holiest of souls experience a kind of suffering in their desire for God's good and the good of their neighbors. Whereas in the kingdom of God, the desire will remain but not the suffering. This union of suffering and holy desire was seen most perfectly in Christ as he hung upon the wood of the cross. While his flesh was in the greatest of torments, his soul was already blessed through its union with the divine nature. Thus, even while a soul in this world will suffer, the more she is one with God, the more she tastes the joys of eternity. This concludes the 15th episode of our series in which the Father leads Catherine to a deeper understanding of the three lights by which we come to know truth. First, that of faith in which all are invited to know God. Next, by the twofold light of those who abandon the things of this world and to grow through discipline of the senses toward ever more perfect surrender to the will of God. Next time, we'll continue the Treatise of Prayer with episode 16 on the need for prayer for priests, beginning with the subsection, how this soul rendering thanks to God humiliates herself, and continuing to the subsection, 
a brief repetition of the preceding chapter on reverence given to priests. Until then, may we walk in the light of God and in great faith embrace His will in all things. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. This has been an episode of The Commentaries, a podcast brought to you by TAN. To follow the show, study more of the greatest Catholic classics, and to support the commentaries and other great free content from TAN, visit TANcommentaries.com to subscribe and use coupon code COM25 to get 25% off your next order, including the dialogue and countless more spiritual works to deepen your interior life and guide you to heaven.